Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I'm super excited for today's guest. Welcome onto the podcast. How about you start out and introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Jill. Thanks. My name is Shan. Um, I am currently living in Indonesia on a tiny little island called Gili Tarangan. Cool. So is that where you grew up? Are you originally from there? Like, how did you end up there? I wish. Uh, I'm originally from (laughs) the UK. Um, I grew up in the Forest of Dean, which is in Gloucestershire. And I moved out to Indonesia almost nine years ago uh, to start learning a little bit more about some coral conservation and uh, a reef restoration technique called the Bioroc. So I learned a little bit about the Gili Eco Trust, which is the organization that works for the environment out here. And they were running uh, like a two week intensive program. So I came out in 2012, uh, primarily just to start volunteering um, and to learn a little bit more about this type of coral restoration. And I fell in love with it instantly and yeah, spent the entire six weeks and then extended on to six months. Uh, finally went home <laughs> went home packed up everything I had at home and then yeah within three weeks I was back out on Gili Trangan and I haven't looked back since wow so you really kind of made that like snap decision of okay I like it here this is a forever kind of thing it was yeah I I've been did a lot of traveling beforehand and I'd done a few other volunteering projects and worked on some different islands um, but there was just something about Gili Trangan that had a little bit of everything that you could want um, and also now that I work for the environmental conservation charity, then yeah, there's a lot of work needing to be done. So I felt like it was a good place to pour all my energy into. Yeah. So did you have a background in marine science? Like, did you go to school for this or anything like that? Or is this just something that you were super passionate about and decided to pursue? I definitely would say like many of the other amazing women you've talked to that I've had a passion for the ocean Uh, since I was tiny I know that I've never actually grown up near the ocean but we spent a lot of our childhood holidays going to lovely wet and sunny Wales uh, camping mainly on the beach so spent a lot of time rock crawling and surfing and just trying to be as close to the water as possible Um, then yeah when I was about seven I was super obsessed with dolphins so I knew everything you could know about dolphins and all the different names and all the different species. And I was told that I could one day become a marine biologist, which I didn't really know what it was at the time. So I, yeah, worked my way towards a path of, I want to be a marine biologist all the way through school. And uh, when I completed college, I didn't quite get the grades for a full marine biology degree to go to university. So then I actually switched to doing Uh, geography and geology and then I managed to take lots of marine ecology and oceanography modules through that and actually it was a kind of blessing in disguise because where I I befriended all of my friends were marine biologists at university so I definitely tried my hardest to stay as close to the marine biology side as possible but in the different ways of what they were studying what I was studying with geography then it's kind of put me on a different path and I feel like it was a path that I was much more suited to which was learning a little bit about how the world works, how the oceans work, and what we as humans uh, have been doing to the world, the natural history of it, and how we can kind of make a change to stop that as well. Oh, cool. That's definitely something that, like, 
you wouldn't directly associate with them, but geology, geography can definitely be tied to the ocean and can really open up a lot of studies with that. So that's really cool to take that route and get that kind of perspective on it. Yes, it was definitely a different route to a lot of people who are kind of working in the field that I'm doing now. Um, I feel like I did have to work a little bit harder just because I didn't have that marine biology degree, but I made mm. sure that I took every extra module um, in my second and third year, and I ended up doing my dissertation uh, more based around marine biology, which kind of blew my geography professors away. So I did very well <laughs> in that, and that's kind of what moved me and boosted me a little bit further ahead as well, I think. Good. So you kind of really got that all around education from coming, like looking at all different aspects of it, but tied it back to that marine biology, because that's just what you loved. That is it. Yeah. As long as it was to do with the ocean and uh, conserving it, then it worked out in the end. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So you mentioned working with Gilead Trust now. So what are you doing with them for that? What is the Gilead Eco Trust and what brought you there? Like you mentioned you were there for an intern, like a six week kind of project what kind of brought you there it was funny actually I was when I was working in the UK I was working for um, a charity called St John Ambulance so that was nothing to do with ocean or anything but they had a a kind of competition one summer where whoever could fundraise for the most money would get a kind of a discount on a trip abroad and I managed to win that which I was super lucky with and one kind of most of the costs of going and doing this uh, marine conservation course and Gili Turangan and I'd never been to Indonesia. I'd been to quite a lot of different parts of Asia um, and I didn't really know very much about Gili Islands or the Gili Turangan especially and I'd done a lot more of my studies in Honduras uh, working in mangrove lagoons and I read a lot about Gili Turangan having a lot of mangroves so that was kind of what I specialized in at the time so I went ahead and signed up for the six weeks and then when I came out here I was already a paddy dive master, so I'd done that the year before in Malaysia. Um, and then, yeah, by the time I got out here and had started learning a little bit more about this reef restoration, um, we did it mainly scuba diving, but once the course was finished, we ended up spending lots more time maintaining the biorox through snorkeling and free diving and just diving as much as we could. So I managed to get a job in one of the dive shops here, so then I could kind of supplement all of the volunteering with a little bit of work at the same time. But the Gila Eco Trust, oh, nice. who I now work for, it's kind of the, meant to be a kind of all-encompassed conservation for the whole island. So it started okay. out just doing marine conservation and trying to work alongside the fishermen that were within the three Gili Islands. It's kind of a, a small chain of islands. Um, and they made an agreement with the fishermen to try and stop them from fishing in certain areas where the divers were just to make it a little bit safer and also to encourage them to stop dynamite fishing and cyanide fishing which are obviously very destructive forms oh, of wow. fishing yeah so that was that was the original aim it was all marine um and conservation based there and then started implementing these biorock structures which are big beautiful artificial reefs which um are made out of kind of like locally resourced steel so they're quite cheap to build um, and then we actually power power them with electricity. So it gives it a little boost of energy underwater. So it's not dangerous. It's like enough to power a light bulb. Usually the ocean and electricity don't go that well together. But <laughs> using it with this, uh, it creates like a an electrolytic reaction. So it's actually taking minerals out of the seawater and putting them onto the substrate, which is this iron rebar. And it's creating a calcium carbonate substrate, which is perfect for corals to grow on. So it was 
it's really good because you can see the results very quickly. So within two weeks, the corals have usually cemented themselves onto this structure and stabilized themselves. So it's very good for that. Um, so I started off working in that. And then now we've kind of moved towards doing some more projects on land. So working within waste management, um, collecting all the rubbish from all the businesses and teaching the businesses how to separate the waste as they go. So moving plastics and cartons and stuff away from food so we can compost it and crushing glass bottles to make eco bricks. So trying to make the entire island a little bit more sustainable, um, especially in the last, I'd say, 10 years. Gili Tarangan has exploded with tourism. It's definitely seen as one of the diving meccas of Indonesia. So it's really, really good for beginner diving. So it's very good if you've never ever tried diving before because we're very famous for our populations of sea turtles. So pretty much guaranteed to see turtles on all dives. But then, uh, yeah, it's one of the main places in Indonesia where you come for professional dive level training as well. So it's kind of got a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's super cool. It's really cool. So, yeah, so I was working as a dive master, uh, sorry, as a dive instructor for the last four and a half years, uh, just trying to teach them a little bit more. So it's like not only are you going to get your diving certifications out of it, but learning a little bit more about the ocean and a bit more about plastic pollution. Um, and then when I started doing that, I started realizing that I, I actually really enjoy teaching. I never thought I'd want to be a teacher in any sense, especially coming from a geography background where most people joke that you're really just going to go down the path of turning into a geography teacher at the end of it. And there I was <laughs> as a scuba instructor and really enjoying that as well. So it kind of showed me that actually sharing knowledge and sharing your passion it doesn't need to just be in a classroom. It can be uh, a classroom on the beach or it can be the classroom underwater as well. So that was quite quite cool to move through those different steps. Yeah, definitely. That sounds super cool. And the Gilly Eco Trust sounds so cool about how it's doing all these amazing things just to promote eco-friendly things and how you've managed to take that and kind of share it in the other aspects of your life, whether it be the diving and or just your everyday kind of life. Yes, this is it. One thing that we really like doing, especially now, the island is moving more towards a kind of party tourism. So there's lots of bars that have overspilled from Bali because we're so close to Bali and we're getting a lot more people coming in uh, in search of parties and drinking. And it's more of an alcohol culture now alongside mm. the diving, which obviously they don't go very well together. Um, <laughs> but then we, we started beach cleans in about 2013, I think. So just after we got there. Um, we started cleaning the beach just with our dive shop and uh, yeah, just collecting all the rubbish off the beach in between two dives when people have their service interval. Um, and then that kind of grew and we started to invite other dive shops and other divers to come. Um, and then also all of the other tourists that might not be diving. Uh, if people are coming here just to party, then generally they don't have, they don't see the ocean. They don't see why we want to protect the ocean. So to be able to get these guys to clean the beach as well, it gives them a little bit more awareness so that they can actually open their eyes to the problems with waste and plastic pollution in the ocean and then actually might take something on and do something more with that afterwards as well. Cool. So you're kind of using like these people on vacation to like giving them a chance to get some education about how to clean up after themselves pretty much. Yeah, this is it. And I think I feel many people that do come here on holiday, they're generally quite ecologically aware at home as well. They'll be doing their recycling. Um, you know, they're taking their packed lunches to work and things. But generally, when people go on holiday, they lose that routine of everything. That's why you go mm. on holiday. But then they also lose that kind of 
need to be a bit more environmentally aware with their impact of things. So even the, the most eco-friendly person at home might still come out to an Indonesian island and buy three plastic bottles of water a day because their doctors told them that the water might not be safe or they always want yeah. a cold bottle of water or something. So it's trying to show them that even whilst you're on holiday, you can still have you know the luxuries of cold water without having to buy loads of plastic bottles. And uh, yeah, just little ways of how they can tread lightly on their holidays that they might not have thought that they would have changed after being at home. Okay, cool. That's amazing. And you got so many different companies involved with that. Like it wasn't just you or just your dive company. Like you said, you had different, like you were doing it in partnership with other companies. Yes. So it started off just with two or three dive shops. Um, And it was very lucky at the beginning because our dive shop, the Triangle Dive is very environmentally aware already. They kind of set up a little thing saying, if we clean the beach for one hour, we'll give you a free bin tank, which is the local beer around here. Uh, And then the next dive shop said, sure, okay, we'll do that next week as well. Um, So then we were kind of putting a bit of uh, social media out and saying thanks to Taranga Dive for giving us a beer for cleaning the beach. Um, And then because the island has like an agreement with all the dive shops, we eventually managed to get about 14 of the dive shops involved as well. And then that extended to some of the cafes wanting to do it and some of the hotels. And now we've got around 45 businesses um, that are rotating weekly. Uh, and we kind of go to their business and we'll clean the beach in front of them mm. or the area behind them that might be really messy. Um, and then they award all the volunteers uh, a free beer at the end of it. So, that is yeah. fantastic. It works really well. It's, it's a very good incentive, especially because we're such a party island. So it's kind of trying yeah. to incentivize those that, you know, might just want a free beer, but they're also going to have a bit of fun and maybe learn something at the same time. But it's Absolutely. also a really good like a a social event so all the dive shops um they might be just kind of working within their own dive shop but it means that the dive master trainees can all get together and meet each other from different dive shops and living on an island we don't really have the weekend vibes so we're trying to add that back in as well every day is a holiday (laughs) so yeah by having a kind of a debris free friday just means the chance to get together with other like-minded people and have a beer on the beach and watch sunset and make a difference that is fantastic and just like I mean, I'd clean up a beach for free, but a beer is just going to be like an extra bonus here, man. Like, I, I'd love that. This is it. it. It makes everything a little bit more jovial and people have fun. And yeah, it, it's it's also beneficial for the business. So it started off being quite a big expense for the business, but then generally people will stick around for an extra beer or they'll read a menu and then be like, maybe they'll want to come back again another day. So we tried to show it as a, it is sustainable tourism. So even though they are giving out 30 to 60 bids once every couple of weeks, then hopefully they'll get some people coming back as well. So it's, we definitely see the way that we want to save the beach, but maybe not everybody wants to do it free, but to show the benefits to the tourists and to the businesses as well, just means that it's managed to work long-term over the last couple of years. So why was it important to you to do something like this or to share sustainability with the tourists that are coming onto this island? When I, I think it's really good to share these kind of things with tourists simply because they might not be aware of it. And when I first started volunteering with the Gilika Trust, we marched straight to the island dump, which is in the middle of Gili Tarangan, um, And we were actually collecting glass bottles there. And it really shocked me at first because you can kind of picture the beautiful picturesque 
uh, palm trees all around and there's some really nice high-end villas in the middle of the island and right in the middle of all of this is a massive stinking dump which has been there for around 15 years um, and the rubbish has just been piling up and there wasn't any waste separation um, and it just baffled me that you know I'm sitting there cleaning the beach every every day when I'm not diving and we're basically just moving the problem from the beach and putting it in the middle of the island where people can't see it so it kind of made me you know if it made me that shocked then maybe if other people knew about it it might make them that shocked too so we started mm. trying to invite people to the dump or kind of when when we're doing the beach cleans now we do a little briefing at the beginning just to show them what they can change and why they need to change it as well because it's not just especially coming from the UK like our waste system is pretty good when when you close your eyes to it it's like you put your rubbish in the bin and you don't really have to think about it anymore and that's what we've been brought yeah. up to do but the whole the whole life cycle after you put it in the bin is kind of what I specialize in now it's that's that's only the beginning of the journey of your waste plastic it's then got to go through so many other stages that it won't end up back in the ocean or on the beach again so we wanted to try and highlight the fact that it's actually only the beginning of the journey once you've used whatever you've used and then put it in the bin. Yeah, it really is kind of a, your trash takes more of a journey than you realize. And it's kind of nice to be able to know where it's going and why it's going there and all that behind the scenes kind of stuff. This is it. And I feel like it's always been, especially in Europe, and they've, they've made sure that everything is behind the scenes and be that because it's not really done properly or just because people don't really want to know about it. Um, I think that's the kind of the mission that we need to be trying to make to change is just by changing people's minds about the way they see waste as a kind of dirty thing, but then also seeing it as like a valuable commodity that we need to treasure the products that we do use um, and then also reduce that use um, or be able to try and recycle or repurpose it as well. So we've Absolutely. Set up a, to kind of counteract that... Um out of sight out of mind mindset that we have where if you don't see the trash it can't bother you but it should still exactly that's it so yeah I I try in a very friendly and polite way through the Gilika Trust to keep shoving that message back into people's faces I don't really think that the negative and the shocking thing works without a positive solution or an alternative as well so I spend my life trying to find yeah trying to find the solutions to these different problems that we have with waste on a tiny little island well, if you're only getting the negative stuff, it's almost going to fill you with such a sense of dread that it's like, well, what even is the point of trying to fix this or counteract it? So to find that like positivity within the solution is such a fantastic way to look at that. And I'm glad we have people like you who are sharing that and spreading that message. Thank you. Yeah, it's it definitely gets me down sometimes. And there are times where I can't do anything just because the problem seems too much or the amount of plastics on the beach is just is just too great but yeah if every person did a tiny little bit and if everybody that did go to the beach you know waiting for your coffee in the cafe and then picked up three bits of rubbish then yeah we definitely wouldn't have the same problem that we have now and another great mindset that we do see here is that the Indonesian way isn't really about waste and it isn't really about thinking about it but then as soon as they do see us on the beach we generally get about half the people that are sitting there just kind of staring at us they'll they'll have a look around even in their cafe and come and put some rubbish in the bag as well whilst we're beach cleaning so it's really nice to see that if they see us doing it they want they want to join in as well so we generally get quite a lot of tourists and locals that are just kind of joining in halfway through which is nice so it's kind of inspiring to see that and that's really what keeps me going for sure that's fantastic now COVID-19 must have really kind of thrown a wrench at you guys where you're 
using these like tourists and traveling and whatnot to kind of spread the message that might have how are you how has COVID-19 impacted you guys I would assume that there's significantly less tourism happening around your area yes it's like we've never seen before and it's it's good and it's bad because I mean living on an island we are super isolated it takes around 45 minutes to get to the mainland um on a boat and they they did stop all boats we kind of got hit in March and we were put under a really strict lockdown uh, for about two or three months on the island, but we could do everything we wanted on the island. So it's just kind of the island that was cut off. So it was really an, a very safe place to be in a pandemic, but at the same time, 90 to 95% of our economy is based around tourism. So to actually see an island basically die overnight was really sad. And all of our friends, everybody has lost their jobs. So all mm. of the, the local staff, that again, even in the mainland, they're predominantly working in Gillies um, in the tourism industry as well. So it's been a bit of a struggle financially for everybody here. So many of the businesses have already closed down. So, I mean, we don't have as much rubbish coming in, but the main funding that the Gilly Eco Trust got was a donation from every diver that enters the marine park. Um, on their first dive, they'd pay a donation to the Gilly Eco Trust. And that's where we got all of our funding to then go back and do the work on the coral reefs and stop uh, the illegal anchoring and to deal with all the waste management and the beach cleans and yeah that's that's dried up since March so it's it's been a bit of a journey trying to find different ways like all of our donations have been locally or supporters that have come to the island before in the past so it's been uh, yeah it's been a huge step for me I've tried I've done a, a really cool course in digital marketing to try and actually shout our voice not just locally to the people here but to shout it a little bit more internationally and finding different ways of writing grants and funding trying to get funding through uh, yeah applications like that as well that's awesome that you're trying to reach out and spread the information virtually because it really has a reach like no other and it's so not easy because it's definitely not easy but it's such an accessible way to share the information yeah this is it and uh, we have we have such a, a beautiful island and the contrast with the amount of rubbish that we get is, is really powerful. So even though we've been lowly here on the island, just trying to post as many photos to our Instagram and try and do, we've got people doing GoFundMe's around the world that have been here before, which has definitely helped loads to kind of share our voice. But then, yeah, being able to do this amazing podcast as well, it's just kind of reaching out in areas that I never would have even thought about before. So it's definitely changed the way that we're working. I spend most of my time either working at home or on the beach, just not even getting sun now, just uh, just beach cleaning. But yeah, it's it's kind of a very patient waiting game. We're very self safe and healthy, which is amazing because COVID hasn't really hit our shores. But but yeah, it, the impacts that come indirectly from it have been really devastating to the island. Yeah, it's like that double-edged sword where you're like, okay, we're thankful, we're so healthy and happy, and it's a safe place to be. Like, you're not peak pandemic, but then also it's like, well, we're suffering oh, in other ways. Uh, yes, this is it. Yeah. And this is, yeah, definitely what anthropogenic-wise, we have suffered quite a lot, but then when, now we're going snorkeling a lot more than diving, because there's only two dive shops left open out of about 23. Um, but yeah, underwater is incredible. So it's another one of these bittersweet things that actually without all the tourists uh, snorkeling and, and the, the boats especially arriving, we usually get up to 60 or 80 boats dropping anchor illegally because you're not really allowed to drop anchor around the island. 
Um, so basically to have almost a year with no boats dropping anchors and no noise pollution and no tourists stepping on corals or picking up things, then the underwater world has seen a dramatic increase in health and yeah, it's flourishing. Yeah, it's amazing to see how like Mother Earth kind of takes on her own when humans are taken out of the equation to the point of like just unimaginable growth and beauty and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And you're like, well, um, there is some negative impacts on us about this, but Mother Earth is doing great. This is it. And yeah, I mean, all thanks to Mother Earth for managing to recover so quickly with what we've done because the island was suffering with what is now termed as over-tourism. So it's kind of a bit, the, the development is a bit too fast for the infrastructure and for the island health to be able to keep up with it. So it's been really devastating to have this break. But then when you see the state of the paths, the streets, the everything is lush and green, uh, there are turtles on literally every dive site now instead of just most of them. Um, and a lot of the big megafauna that we kind of were losing, like uh, sharks and things, they've actually started coming back as well. So it's really cool to see how alive everything is without people here. But it's just kind of sad that nobody's here to witness it with us. With us. Mm. It really, like you mentioned how quickly Mother Earth flourished after, like during this. And it is unbelievable that like when left to her own devices how quickly she can recover and it's kind of like one of those things that's like oh if we just kind of stop everything for a little while maybe we can get back on track kind of thing like hmm. this is it I mean at the beginning of the at the beginning of the pandemic is most of my uh, Facebook algorithms are all around the conservation-based stuff so it was just kind of showing different things of uh, yeah different areas where things are growing back super quickly birds are coming back and wildlife is, is returning so it doesn't take long to have a break it's just that I hope the one positive thing that we can take out of something like this is to show that it's not just us that needs a break but if we could give nature a bit of a break you know even once a year or something then surely that's going to be yeah impacting hugely on the way that the environment works and the way that we can actually coexist with our environment as well. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier you were working on a coral restoration project. Has Is that still continuing now or has that kind of been put in a pin? Tell us a little bit about that. So we've been doing a type of coral propagation, which is using a method by a guy in Malaysia called Anwar Abdullah. And he's been developing this kind of propagation method since the 80s. But uh, it's very essentially the same as what you would do with plants on land is we would find a small bit of broken coral that is broken off with a storm or some of the currents or again the, the anchor damage that we have um, usually around the size of your fist and then cutting it into then smaller fragments again so maybe as small as maybe one centimeter even one centimeter of coral has yeah between 50 and 100 polyps on it depending on the species of coral you're propagating um, and then when we get these little fragments, we then find what we call a live rock, which is a bit of coral rubble that we found underwater that has got a biofilm covering it. So it's full of algae, it's got the sponges and little lace corals and things. And this biofilm actually protects the coral whilst it's growing instead of putting in uh, a, maybe a cement disc or something that has been made or a bit of coral that's been found on the beach. It hasn't really got any covering on it. So when you put it in the water, initially in the first few weeks, everything that is anything will want to try and grow on it and it sometimes smothers coral fragments so by using what we find underwater that's already kind of got this protective film on it it helps the corals uh, not get overwhelmed by different algal blooms and things 
Um, and luckily our little coral nurseries are around three or four meters. So you, whereas we usually dive them, if we don't have a chance to dive them, we can actually snorkel and free dive and keep checking on their progress all the time. So but before oh, cool. COVID, that's really cool. Before COVID, I think we were doing between five and six courses a year. So just trying to teach as many people how to become coral propagators. If they're staying on the island for like a six month uh, dive internship, then they can actually, you know, keep volunteering and helping to plant corals as well. So when that stops, um, there's only me and my project manager, Delphine, that are still at the Gileka Trust. So we've been kind of trying to teach some more of the islanders a little bit about the coral propagation. Um, and since lockdown, we've built two, two extra nurseries um, and there's no boats anchoring on them. So they're actually doing a lot better than they oh, would be nice. usually. So even though we can't get out there as often, um, the good thing about this like propagation technique, because we're all using everything natural out of the ocean, we sadly have quite a lot of coral rubble uh, from all the storms and the boat anchoring. So we're actually making nurseries out of this coral rubble. So we don't need to do very much maintenance on it at all because we have our friends, the butterfly fish and the surgeon fish, and they actually go around and pick all of the algae off. So if we ever get any algal blooms, then it's generally all of these different fish that are going through and clearing it all up for us. So as long as we're checking it once a week, just to make sure things haven't toppled over, um, it's generally a very sustainable approach because when something like this happens and if everybody had to leave the island, we could come back in a year's time. And yeah, I think it would still be looking pretty healthy. That's amazing that you're still able to kind of keep up with this and keep moving with the coral propagation. And it's definitely being affected with like the limited number of people to help you out, but it doesn't have the boats resting on it and all the all natural stuff. It, it sounds like it's kind of thriving. Yeah, this is it. It definitely looks more thriving now than it did a year or so ago. Some of our first corals we put down in 2018, we put them down, yeah, like about one centimeter in size and now they're around 35 to 40 centimeter tables so we've actually once we've taken once we've got them that size on our nursery then we can actually move them across to dive sites which have been previously damaged by diver activity we had some major earthquakes two and a half mm -hmm. years ago so we had quite a lot of landslides there so we're trying to kind of restore these these uh, like more sloping reefs and giving them extra stability by adding more corals to them so they can start re regrowing as well so it's been, yeah, wow. it's been flourishing. So we're definitely looking very healthy underwater now. Oh, that makes me so happy. I love corals. Corals are one thing that I like, I wish I knew more about them because I find them so fascinating. But oh, I, like, I, they're on my list to like learn more about. So hit me with your best coral facts. Well, coral facts. One of the main reasons why I love corals is using this propagation technique is we're also turning a huge negative of, the coral damage and the coral destruction around into a positive because if you break a coral or a coral gets broken for whatever reason um, as long as the two halves are actually healthy enough then they can asexual reproduction so then they can split into two corals um, and then wherever the one bit will drift and fall into then it will usually start growing in that place as well so uh, yeah we had some really devastating earthquakes about two and a half years ago and even some of the massive boulder corals which are two three meters across in length like they've been there for hundreds of years um they actually got split into two and after oh. one month of all the earthquakes stopping we managed to get back in the, uh, into the water to try and assess the damage and even in one month 
these big boulder corals that were split into two now had a little channel in between. So there were hundreds of squirrel fish and soldier fish living inside the, the polyps that actually started growing down either side of the coral. So then we had two fat boulder corals instead of just one. So yeah, the fact that, you know, if, if a person got split in two, it would not be all that helpful for us at all. But yeah, the, the ways that corals can naturally reproduce in this way and, and replicate through propagation, I think is incredible. And it's definitely, hopefully going to be one of the main successes that we can see um, to the Gilly Island uh, coral reef. That is so cool that like split in two, they still function. Like it just, it's so cool to me how that works. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some of the best team building, uh, team building relationships I think I've seen, the coral polyps. That is amazing. I love corals. So what kind of corals are you working with there? You mentioned a couple kinds. Was Is that like your main focus is those ones that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, we have, for the propagation, we can propagate most corals. You can even try and propagate soft corals and gorgonian sea fans as well, which we haven't done too much of. But we have a lot of uh, fast-growing acropora, which is like a staghorn coral. That's like a general branching type coral. They're really nice to propagate because the branches are a lot easier to cut than certain types of boulder corals, but they also grow very quickly. So for regenerating a reef, having a few different species of branching corals as the kind of pioneer species is actually very good. Um, then we have some different types of submassive and boulder corals, which when they're small, they're generally kind of flattening, crusting on a rock, and then they turn into a little lump. So they grow a lot slower, but they are way more secure and stable on a reef. So when we get storms coming in, the staghorn coral will probably get more beaten up by the waves because they grow quickly and therefore are more brittle. But when we start growing the boulder corals, then they grow super slow. So the ones we planted two years ago, you know, they're still only five or 10 centimeters in, in diameter. So they're not massive, but these are the ones that won't get flipped over. So in 20, 30 years time, then hopefully, yes, they'll be a lot stronger and more supported than the staghorn corals. But we also have lots of uh, more like larger polyp sized corals that we can propagate as well, just two or three polyps rather than 50 or 100. Um, and some more of the platy and very delicate corals. We're really lucky around the gillies as well. We have one special type of coral called the Heliopora, which is a type of blue coral. Um, and whereas most corals, when they die or when they get stressed, they'll bleach and they'll be bright white. But this blue coral, which actually looks kind of a reddy brown on the outside, has got a blue skeleton in the middle. So it doesn't have the same type of photosynthetic algae where it gets most of its energy from. So when we've had mass bleaching events, this type of blue coral is the most resilient that we've seen on some of the biorock structures and in some of the natural reefs as well. So when we found broken fragments of that after storms, we've actually started to propagate this blue coral to try and make uh, yeah, bigger armies of corals that are more resilient to the temperature stresses and the bleaching that we have quite frequently on the gillies as well. That's amazing. So this is definitely more of a long-term project that you're like, it's not an overnight kind of everything solved project. So is that kind of your planned futures to continue working on this? Yeah, for sure. It's, you can see some very short-term results. So usually the corals have started growing within two or three weeks after being placed yeah. in the coral nursery. By cutting them very small, they they think that they're a baby again. So they actually grow a lot quicker oh. than they would if you propagated a fist-sized coral. So we're that kind of so tricking cute. them back. It's amazing, isn't it? If you think a human grows a lot more between zero and 10, so we, we explode in height and size. 
And then we kind of start slowing down again. So as a, as a coral turns into a teenager, it will slow down its growth and it will kind of get a bit slower. But then if we actually replicate it back uh, into thinking it's a, a little baby, it's smaller, then they'll actually all grow faster and then we can start replenishing the reef a little bit quicker. So when you're doing it, you like propagate a new one, let it grow for a little bit, take that one, propagate it again. So just so you have all these babies. You definitely could. We have different nurseries. So we've got like a training nursery, a research nursery, a quarantine nursery, and one which we're just kind of leaving to the wild. So when they get too big, we're putting them there and we've kind of made a little barrier reef with a new nursery as well. But essentially you could have a few kind of mother corals left in the nursery and you could start to propagate these ones indefinitely really. And it could kind of be the, the standard like that. We're trying to increase the genetics a bit more. So because sadly we have so many broken corals, thanks to all the, the fast currents and storms and stuff we have here, we're never really short of coral frags to propagate. So we can kind of keep increasing that gene pool. So we're not just like building an army, like as, as in a monoculture. Um, but yeah, when some of the nursery corals are broken as well, because again, they're quite shallow, um, we've propagated these ones and they've worked way quicker than the ones that we're propagating off the reef. So we can actually see a trend in that too. That is so cool. So it's very, yeah, it's, it's cheap to do and it's really sustainable. And, and it's been a blessing that we've been able to do that whilst we haven't really had very much income for the Gilly Eco Trust. And whilst we have so many bored dive professionals on the island, we've basically just gone around teaching them all. The course is usually like three days. So it's like a, an open water course for scuba diving. You can do your kind of open water course for coral propagation. So we've been teaching all the dive instructors for free this course because they're here and you know waiting around for tourism to come back so we've kind yeah. of yeah created an eco army of bored people who are really good at diving so we don't need to teach them <laughs> the same buoyancy skills we can just kind of let them loose and be able to help us with all the projects so it's been really positive in that sense keeping them busy yeah so that that must be super helpful to have like many hands that you're not as not that you would be concerned with like visitors doing it or tourists doing it but like you never know like somebody's um skill level in the water all the time but like with someone with people like that that have the experience it must be nice to not be like worrying about exactly. what's gonna happen you kind of know that you've got it under control their buoyancy is on point yes this is it it's like usually we do a check dive <laughs> at the beginning and we'll point out corals and no one's allowed to touch anything just checking the buoyancy skills of the divers but yeah so when we did it with all the dive professionals they've, you know, they've done thousands of dives, so their buoyancy is fine. And they're the guys that actually helped us create two extra nurseries, which essentially means swimming in a hundred square meters of coral reef and looking for large lumps of rubble, which are between five and 10 kilos and actually dragging them using scuba. So we're never gonna get normal recreational divers to be doing this, but having this many strong hands uh, it's, we would never have been able to make two extra nurseries in the lockdown unless we had all of these divers and dive professionals helping us out. So yeah, it's definitely a different type of course and they got their best underwater workout I think they've ever had. But yeah, the results are amazing now. So it was all worth it. Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. And I'm really excited to hear many years in the future about all these like huge like coral blooms and like how your oceans down there are just absolutely full of corals because of this oh this is it we hopefully we can make more nurseries in places where they're needed especially in some of the dive sites that have been a bit too heavily exploited um and actually build nurseries and propagate them directly on there from a boat when we've got boats coming back so then 
because they don't need too much maintenance then even if you just go out once a month when they're a bit more established then it's kind of just as long as they're left to their own devices and not not there's no bleaching or anything then yeah they should just be able to kind of replenish as a natural coral reef on its own like that yeah and there's there's a few different types of restoration projects especially around gillies that they've tried and the the problem with the the metal that we have here isn't very good so unless you're actually putting electricity through it it's going to start to rust and the rust when it oxidizes in the water it damages and stresses out the corals as well so we've got quite a lot of underwater mess of like projects in the past that have been like tried or piloted and they haven't really worked so there's just quite a lot of rubbish underwater whereas these nurseries are quite special on their own because if you just leave it then it looks like a pile of rocks so we don't get as many people visiting it to snorkel it because it essentially looks like a pile of rocks with way more fish around it than the surrounding area so it's quite a quite a sneaky way of doing it and it means if we all had to leave gillies forever then yeah the reef is just going to carry on without us which is which is what we're looking for anyway yeah that's fantastic so you mentioned that you were a dive master and dive instructor what and when did you like what got you into diving and when did you start diving what was kind of your path to that was it a natural progression where you just loved the ocean so much and you're like hey I could be spending time in the ocean yeah I was really lucky like we spent most of our holidays as kids in Wales and when I was about 12 we went on our first airplane first like flight holiday to Greece um, and I did my first like discovery dive in Zakynthos and I was blown away it was like I was actually really scared to start off with I felt quite claustrophobic and the dive instructor said that we did a really good job so we went for a second dive as well and got to go and see these crazy rocky beaches and it was just amazing so then after that when I finished college I saved up as much as I could and went to Egypt to do my open water course um, and then following that I went to Malaysia and did some turtle conservation um, and we were kind of patrolling the beaches looking for turtles but then also doing our dive master at the same time so that was a really good internship to do that and then yeah every dive trip I kind of returned to the UK to work again and then eventually it was kind of just finding a way to be able to stay out and dive and be able to earn money at the same time. So yeah, being a dive instructor actually put both of those passions into place and worked perfectly. Yeah, that sounds like the optimal thing. You're like, oh, I love to dive. Oh, I need money to live. How to dive, I yeah. dive for money? Yeah. <laughs> I got dive to make money to dive. Yeah. So it was it was <laughs> definitely a win-win. And and being able to volunteer with the Gilly Eco Trust as well. I volunteered for about four years because they said that they could never afford uh, to have a second person on so I had to you know save up enough money to be able to live on a wage a salary from an NGO um, and also learn Indonesian so I'd kind of been you know rejected a few times saying you can carry on volunteering but you'll never find a job here you'll have to find somewhere else so I was just very very determined to learn Indonesian and to save up enough money to then come back being like give me half a salary and let me work for basically free and I'm happy to do it so yeah it works in the end (laughs) had to be very determined it's so funny how when you're doing something you love you're willing to take that like pay cut like if someone had offered you just like a job doing something super random that you did not want to do for that salary I'm sure you would be like um absolutely not but if it's like diving or something you love you're like "Ah, okay cool I'll do it for free if you really want oh this is it yeah and I was happily doing it for free for ages it was just more the fact that if I want to do that I need to stay here too so yeah it was a a perfect combination definitely and I feel like I've got my dream job now 
I love that. That makes me so happy. It makes me really happy every day. <laughs> Very frustrating <laughs> sometimes. Was... Oh yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of negatives. There's definitely a, a huge culture difference between the way that we would like things to be run, but then also knowing the bureaucratic system in Indonesia is is quite frustrating and difficult mm. to understand. And any laws that we have fought to put in place, like we managed to get a marine protected area put in place. I think Delphine, my manager, was working for at least six years trying to do that in 2014, and it worked really well. And the the reefs were being protected for about a year and then yeah they they just stopped enforcing all the laws and they're back to anchoring everywhere and fishing everywhere so it's quite frustrating seeing a lot of hard work go down the drain but not the ocean um and then yeah (laughs) it's kind of like you have to have a certain type of patience and the people that I've seen and and kind of followed and role modeled for the last few years I've kind of watched them and and tried to learn their patience and, and their determination to be able to overcome these really difficult obstacles as well finding little things that make you happy to make yourself feel better as well finding the joys within the little within the negativity is really what makes exactly. it all worth it definitely um now my favorite question to ask people is if you had one like eco-friendly swap that you would recommend to everyone or is like the one swap that you can't live without what would it be what would be your kind of like this is the one swap you can make and like it doesn't have to be something as simple as a water bottle it can be something super random so whatever is your like number one favorite thing I think the the thing that I felt like I was quite late to because was uh the very very humble bar of soap like it's (laughs) so boring and so underwhelming and it's what we grew up using was a bar of soap until you kind of I don't know then started using like all the shower gels and things but then yeah, yeah my partner had been using a bar of soap with no smell for ages and I was like I've got to have all these nice smells and all these different bubbles and things and then uh, yeah to actually turn back just to a bar of soap which lasts three times as long and now there are so many artisan soap companies like even in just Lombok in the Gillies so many people making handmade bars of soap which saves so much plastic it saves so much um, even carbon footprints for the transport of liquid soaps and shampoos and things like this just putting everything taking all the water out and putting it into a bath is just incredible like I don't understand how the hot the marketing world has scammed everybody into like oh, yeah. basically taking a bar of soap and adding loads of water until it's a smush and putting it in a bottle and selling you a heavier product whereas you could just have a bar of soap so as a as a traveler it's a lot easier I am so happy you said that because that is like bars of soap are such not at all. They are so (laughs) underrated. I love bar soap. (laughs) I love it. And like I was in the same boat, like always wanting that, like I would literally like open up the bottles and like "Mm, I like this smell or I like this smell, like looking for a specific smell. And even if you are looking for that, so many people are making bars of soap now. And so many places that it, like have these amazing natural scents that you can get. And it's like, if you want that scent, it's there. Like you can find that. You can find all of the scents. Yeah. And they're, you know, obviously it's better going down the drain afterwards. So obviously I think a lot about the afterlife of products. So even by using natural soaps with lye and things like that, instead of all the chemicals and even going into the ground and into the septic tanks, which we have on the island, then it's a lot more environmentally sustainable than all of the really perfumed and scented products, which... You know, there's still microbeads in Indonesia. I don't know when they're going to be able to ban things like that, but 
yeah, having a soap with coffee grounds in it or just using your coffee grounds as a scrub, then yeah, it yeah. just eliminates everything that gets into the environment after you've used it as well. And they still smell fantastic. Exactly. It's so easy to reduce, reuse, recycle. And it just, exactly. it's so fun. It's fun to be like innovative in the ways that you can do it. Yeah, this is it. And it's just trying to find things that are so simple that they're kind of overlooked. And then, yeah, by challenging people and showing different ones. And we've got so many the small startups in Lombok with all natural products. And, you know, they're growing coconut soap from the coconut palm trees that are in their gardens. So it's all so localized and, yeah, not big brands. So it's actually supporting the local community where, you know, they might have been working in a, sh- in a shop full of plastic sachets and crisp packets and snacks and things and now they've just kind of seen the potential of just growing stuff in their garden and making it and selling it you know for triple the price than they would buy themselves but selling it to foreigners for less than one dollar two dollars and we're still happy to pay those prices and for them it's great so yeah it's really good to be able to support all of these little startups that are in Lombok it's fun especially I fear like pretty much everywhere's around the world now there's people making soaps. So it's not even one of those things that you have to like order from a small business in a different country. Like there's people in my city that are making soap and two cities away that are making soap. So you can always find it. You can always find that bar of soap that's local to you. Yeah, this is it. And for Christmas last year, I even I got my mom like a soap making kit. So I Oh, I don't nice. know how easy it is. I've never done it myself, but she's she's all over the soap making now. So it's, it seems to be a very easy thing. But it's also yeah, it can be it can be scalable, it can be profitable, and and it's a lot better for the environment as well. So it's just a, an all over win, I think. That is amazing. Well, it was amazing to have you on today. I'm so excited to share this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening and until next week, stay salty.